Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. We are doing something a little bit new. We are actually um, streaming live on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, probably a few more places. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in uh, joining in as we record these, we are going to try and uh, put them up live, and then we'll edit them and put them on the podcast feed and things like that. But um, anyway, if you want to uh, be part of the conversation, you can also comment in any of those places, and it'll pop up, and we'll respond to those. Um, this week on our panel, we have Steve Edwards. To do my best, AJ. Yo, 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 coming at you live from my room with my space heater in Oregon. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. Um, and I am doing a bit of work on the website so that you can get at some of the courses we're putting together. Um, so go check that out. And then we also have a special guest, and that is uh, Lars Eric Rold, I think is what I'm seeing here. Yes, that's correct. I'm from uh, calling from Norway, in Trondheim. Oh, cool. And, uh, you can, it's the last name is just like the, the writer, the Roald Dahl, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yep. It's funny because my wife's actually watching Matilda the musical in the other room. Uh, okay. so. <laughs> Matilda's one of the books that? that he wrote. Oh, gotcha. Oh, this Roald Dahl is the author of Matilda. So, uh, yeah. And if you've read the, uh, the book, it, it's a fun book. So, but yeah. yeah. Very cool. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is, why people are love yes. what you do? Or why they should give you money? I uh, started uh, as a software developer in 2001. Uh-huh. And uh, started out with uh, C Sharp. And, uh, and then I got into JavaScript and Node. And today I'm uh, mostly working in uh, in Node and uh, in Vue. So the last uh, two years, I uh, I changed my workplace. So now I'm working with uh, a company called uh, Sistur in Norway, and we are uh, uh, we are maintaining this. Uh, we're working for the Norwegian Public Roads Administration, keeping track of the vehicle toll passages. So oh, wow. uh, they, yeah, taking pictures of the cars and uh, keeping track of all the passages, and uh, and we also have this footprint calculator for the Norwegian, Norwegian uh, farmers. Um, but uh, the first nineteen years, I spent uh, coding for uh, logistics solutions for okay. transport planning and uh, drivers uh, app and. Uh, Track and trace and and so on. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I have a number of friends that have done logistics. My last contract was logistics. Seems like that's an area that won't ever go anywhere. <laughs> Plenty of work to do there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, we brought you on today to talk about uh ORMs or object relational mappers and uh your RDB ORM. Uh, do you want to give us just a little bit of background as to why you created RDB and what what problems it solves for you? I think it started in 2014. We were given the task to to create a new product. It was a 
a booking uh, booking website for the for the customers of the transporters. Mm-hmm. So we were uh, we were free to decide which database to choose and also which uh, technology to do to use. So uh, we quickly found out that Postgres Postgres was uh, a good choice, but uh, we were eager to try Node as well. And at that time, I think uh, Node was quite young. I think it was on the zero dot ten or something. So uh, we we thought we'd go for for Node, and we checked out what kind of ORMs that existed and. Uh, we found SQLize, and uh, we considered using it, but uh, it has it had so many bugs and was so inconsistent. So we we knew we had to live this we lived with this product for for many years. So uh, we just considered making our own ORM, and uh, I, I previously previously had some experience with. Uh, in-house ORM in, in C-sharp. So it wasn't all that new. Mm. So that's how it started. Very cool. So you built this product and you built an ORM to go on top of it so that you could map your database entities or database rows into objects in your applications you could build it. Yeah. That's correct. So yeah. uh, in the beginning, there was, of course, only JavaScript. So, mm-hmm. uh, so the last uh, two years, I uh, added a TypeScript layer on top of it, and uh, okay, and using uh, something called uh, generic type mapping in uh, mm-hmm. in TypeScript. That means that you can that TypeScript is running as you. <laughs> edit stuff in in uh, design time so you can uh, it creates new types as you as you write your code there's no need for code generation okay and there are some ORMs uh, like prisma and drizzle ORM uh, that does this today as well okay so I, i'm kind of curious because i've i remember way back early in my career um, of course, I was writing Ruby on Rails, but one of my mentors mentioned to me that I ought to write an ORM as an exercise to understand some of the things that go into um, building applications like what I was building, right? So Ruby on Rails has an ORM. It's called Active Record. Um, but, you know, you see these in, in a lot of other systems. And it seems like on the face of it, it's pretty. it would be pretty simple, right? You do the query and you do the mapping. But as I kind of got into it, I figured out that there were a lot, there were a lot of other things that went into it, especially if you wanted to your, because you want your ORM to save you work, right? To do things for you. Like you mentioned the, the um, generative, what was it? Generative type generation or. Generic type right? mapping. Yes. Mm. Generic type mapping. Right. So that may be a thing you want, or there may be other concerns or other ideas that you want to build into it. And so then it gets, more complicated, right? Because you want some of those convenient uh, methods or functions to be performed as you work so that it's, okay, it's not just grabbing the types and making them JavaScript or TypeScript, but now it's also, you know, solving some of these other problems that I'm going to have as I build my app or 
accounting for other concerns. So I'm, I'm curious, as you built out an ORM, and then we can get into some of the, um, uh, I, that whatever that term was, we should probably just put it in the comments, <laughs> right? <laughs> but Generic uh, type mapping, yes. Gener generic type mapping, I'm just going to. I'm going to put that in the comments just so that I can remember it. But um, yeah, you get the idea. Yeah. So as you're building out the the ORM, what, what kinds of problems were you trying to solve besides just making it so that you had a JavaScript class instead of a kind of a map or a, 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 well, a, a generic object? I was, we needed the... Uh to have some kind of persistence without too much work. And uh, in the beginning, okay. we made it uh, mm -hmm. with the persistence ignorance. That means that you, on the top of it, you, know, you make some kind of, not transaction, but uh, I don't, some async local context around the whole thing. So that when you update anything on the record, mm -hmm. you wouldn't need to call explicitly called save or something with just okay when the transaction was over it was commit it just committed anything or if the database you needed to fetch anything if you had pending changes it would just commit it mm -hmm. yeah that was uh, in the original implementation and it's still running in the core but as i uh, made this typescript uh, thing on top of it i i found out that it would just be more beneficial to have explicit save and, and so on. Because I also wanted to work in, in the browser as well. So right. yeah, that it was more convenient. And uh, when you create your own ORM, you will, you will uh, dig into problems like performance, especially when you're mm -hmm. dealing with one-to-many relations and even nested one-to-many mm -hmm. relations. So that's a that's a typical problem that you will stumble upon. Hey, before we get going too far, could we step back and do a little basic definition? Yeah. Of what we're doing here with an ORM and what it stands for. Um, obviously, stands for Object Relational Mapper. But from a database standpoint, what is the purpose of this? What is it doing for you? And and how does it work just from a basic level? Um, I know we've had I've had the Larry Karpov on a couple of times to talk about Mongoose, which is the Node ORM for Mongo, uh, which is you know a document database, so it's going to be a little different than a than a SQL yeah. style database. So what is what is it doing um, for the for the developer? Well, the ORM is just it's just an uh, an object relational mapper. So it's a technique for converting the data from the from a relational database to the structures in the programming language. So. And uh, it's funny you say mongoose because it's not relational. So, right. Yeah, but it still has its usages uh, because you have to create queries and so on. And that's, it's complex to do that. So, um, and usually when you have a relational mapper, it's usually categorized into two or three patterns it's the active record, mm -hmm. which means that uh, you did define a model in code. And uh, then you call the get get one or get many, and you get the records. And these records also have behavior like they have methods like uh, save or delete or something. 
So they have some kind of logic, they're not anemic. And then there is the other category, which is the data, data map pattern or the repository pattern. This means that the, the, the rows are completely non-behavioral. They have no logic at all. It's only data. So in order to fetch stuff and to save stuff, you need to use the repository for that. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what you're going to do is, from a SQL standpoint, you're going to define your tables, right? In your ORM, you're going to find, okay, here's my users table, here's my you know, blog post table, here's my image table, whatever it is you have, and your particular fields, right, to your mapper so that when you want to make queries, it knows, okay, here's my fields available, and, and then access them from your ORM instead of going directly to the database, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And some of the ORMs, they, they can reverse engineer your database as well. So you can generate your model from, from the database. And you can also okay. have uh, great migrations. But uh, I, I think that if you're trying to both define your models in code, and when you try to reverse engineer the database, you will end up in trouble. Because it's like a it's like a hard uh, git merge with con merge with complex. It's it's really hard, and I see that a lot of ORMs they have a lot of issues regarding uh, reverse engineering mixing with forward engineering. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, that's troublesome. So you said that RDB has been around for like what, like uh, ten years, nine years, something like that. Uh, it's been. Since 2014, yes. Right. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, I see a lot of stuff in here, you know, in the API, mapping tables, connecting, inserting, fetching, updating, deleting. Um, you can run it in the browser, which is cool. Yeah. Um, a bit scary, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, transactions, which makes sense if you're on Postgres. Uh, or MySQL also has it. Um, SQLite, I think, has it as well. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, data types, default values, that all makes sense. Uh, you've built validation in, which is cool. Um, you can do raw SQL. Um, so I think these are a lot of things that people who work on a, on a relational database would expect, right? It yeah. makes sense to have them. Um, so, so I kind of want to just move along a little bit and talk about, um, the generic type mapping. So you mentioned that, you know, it's it's the way that you're basically getting your types into TypeScript, right? Yes. So how does that work? Like, what, what does it do? Because, I mean, I've fiddled with TypeScript, but this isn't something that I've had to deal with. And it sounds like it's something that, as a casual user, it's not something that I would have to deal with, right? It's something that I would expect my framework yeah. or what have you to do for me, right? It's it's really convenient if you would like to write your complete library in pure JavaScript, and you will also would like the consumer to have TypeScript. So what you do is you can actually start out with <laughs> no implementation at all and just uh -huh. generate this or just create this uh, uh, definition file. It's it's usually called some index.d.ts. Uh huh. So you can you can start out 
just experimenting with the type mappings and you can create new interfaces as you go on and still have no implementation <laughs> so it's kind of kind of magic and also i think it's quite difficult to to understand some of the generics in it so i had a hard time <laughs> implementing it but yeah I, I think it was worth it so does it so let's say i generate a model or an entity right something that maps something out of my database into my application right is this automatically generating the type in the d.ts uh, yes. file let's say you're creating you, you map uh, an order table uh -huh. with the uh, order id mm -hmm. and you say table is called order or underscore ordered mm -hmm. and you say column and you give the column name like uh, id and you give mm -hmm. it uh, order number or a date and then right. straight away, can you, you can use you can uh, call methods on this newly generated order mm -hmm. with get many and so on. And you can start using filters. Okay, I would like to have uh, order dot order date between from to, and it was it will all all these things will be created for you without. No code can range not at all, but you still have to implement okay. it behind, behind the <laughs> Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I don't have to write any code, and you're saying it's not generating any code. So, how does TypeScript, because there's usually a language service behind TypeScript, right? So, if I'm working in VS Code, like yeah. it picks up my types and it does the mapping and it's smart enough to figure out, um, you know, a lot of these pieces for me. So, is there some dynamic thing that you're handing off to TypeScript or yes. are you updating the definitions file or how does that work? No, there's no definition definition files. Okay. So it's just everything is just dynamically. So Okay. So it's just an API to my Yeah. TypeScript so runtime and you say, yeah. Hey, there's this type or there are these types if I have several of them. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens and, at the build step then? Does it it just pulls it it does the same thing basically? Well, at the build step there is there is no build step. You you have to create your IP IPI with mapping methods so the okay. JavaScript library knows what to do. Okay. So this uh, cool. generic type mapping is just syntactical sugar. It's it's just that. <laughs> right. Well, I know a lot of people that are building apps with TypeScript, and so they would expect, um, for example, if I'm making a call to get all the orders out of the system, and then I'm getting, you know, it it gets all the line items for the orders, then they're expecting the get line items call to return a set of line item types that are defined in TypeScript. And so, so all of this is just dynamically handled Yes, Magically. you you would use a fetching strategy. Mm -hmm. Let's say I have order with uh, with lines, and each line have products. So, right. if you say okay, orders get many, and with no fetching strategy, I just get the the, the orders without lines, mm -hmm. and I can pass in a fetching strategy, and everything 
that you passes in in the fetching strategy is you have IntelliSense on it. So uh -huh. you could suggest, okay, you can, I want to have orders, now I want to have lines. And uh, you can also say that, okay, I only want the product name. I don't right. want all, all the other stuff. Very cool. Yeah. So, so then um, the generic type mapping does the part where it says, and I expect these to be line items or expect these to be products or expect these to be strings that are product names or whatever. Yes. As if you would have some code generation, but there isn't any. Right. That's slick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it was a lot of work. What, what did you have to do to make this work? Well, in the... There's a lot of uh, generics involved, and uh, uh -huh. it's kind of meta programming. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> and also, it, you cannot you cannot do any counting in in the generics. Right. So let's say I have a composite ID with uh, with two uh, two columns in it, uh -huh. and um, and then I want to have a okay. I want this table with this composite ID, I want to join it to another mm -hmm. table. And then I wanted the, the TypeScript to suggest the correct types based on the from table and the, the primary keys of the, the target table. So they will would match suggest based on the, the, the primary keys. But the problem is that I would only suggest that you have two inputs, the first key and the second, the first column and the second column. And mm -hmm. this is really hard because you can't do any counting. <laughs> you can't, you have to tell the, the generic stuff that one plus one is two. There is no way of just saying that, okay, I have two generic Oh, interesting. Keys, so, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I stopped at six, six columns in the, in the composite case. <laughs> I think that's, that's sufficient. Mm -hmm. So that's simple things are are hard and other things are easy. So it's yeah. right. So I guess the other question I have is why make all the effort to make TypeScript do all this stuff? I mean, the ORM itself will run in JavaScript, won't it? Yeah, it will. So the only reason is to to have a better developer experience, and I think that. Uh, if you want, if you want your ORM to be public and people want to use it, you just have to have TypeScript today. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't survive. I think. Yeah, there I, there seems yeah. to be a lot of adoption for TypeScript, yeah. so that makes sense. But uh, using TypeScript for the library itself, it was not really an option. <laughs> it would be uh, very difficult, and all the 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 types would be in the way, I think. But being so, a consumer of, of an ORM is, is nice, but writing the ORM with, with TypeScript, that, that's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so what's the difference then? Is it because it was historically written in JavaScript and so doing the rewrite would be hard? Or are there specific things about TypeScript that no, make it I, hard? Let's see. I think it's it's both. So of course it's historical written in in, in right. JavaScript, and it would be hard to just move over to TypeScript. But still, there are things that you do on a prototype level, and 
low-level JavaScript that's not easily done with, with TypeScript, I think. Okay. Steve, do you have some questions you want to ask? I feel like I've kind of been monopolizing the last 20 minutes. No, not really. Uh, I'm not haven't dived into the TypeScript world yet. Um, you know, I think I've discussed here most of my experience with an ORM is coming from Laravel, uh, mm-hmm. Eloquent, since that's the ORM for uh, Eloquent is the ORM for Laravel. So I'm fairly, you know, familiar with how they work and, and what they do, but uh, uh, not in the TypeScript world. So I'm living mostly in PHP as compared to Node. So that was right. just my reason for asking for the, uh, you know, basic definition of what an ORM is. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I can't think of any other questions off the top of my head or offhand. All right. Well, I'll keep going then. Um, so Lars, I'm wondering if you're using RDB on any apps that you're building currently. Yes, it's uh, still being used at uh, my previous coworker, mm-hmm. my previous workplace and uh, I think they're using it in about 100 installations mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's not widely used but it's used in uh, critical systems and it's right. also used uh, at uh, my current uh, employer I think it's it's uh, yeah we made an IPA for receiving uh, uh, the status of the each uh, toll at the toll station, there is, uh, yeah, yeah, I created a REST IPA for every fifth minute. Okay. Uh, there is sent statuses from the cameras, radars, and lasers from okay from the whole Norway to this API, and this is using the RDB. Very cool. And are and is all that written in TypeScript now, or? Yeah, that's that's TypeScript in the. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that performance is always an issue. So uh, how well does this perform? How many API calls can it get and over what time period and how much compute are you putting behind it? (laughs) That depends on your machine, of course, but uh, I haven't done any benchmarks on it. But it's it's pretty uh, performant. That's that's all I can say. It's, uh, we have this, Hub at uh, my previous employer that receives all the truck data from the drivers, right? From about 150 companies at, uh, mm-hmm. at the same time, so it's oh wow it's performing well, yeah. And uh, cool. and for a SQL Server, I I did a special uh, query for it because it has this built-in for JSON queries, mm-hmm. so you can create one large query. With, with the uh, subqueries below it beneath it, mm-hmm. and it performs extremely well. I don't know if you have tried it. It has. Uh, it's called uh, for JSON Auto in uh, SQL Server. So if you name your columns and correctly, you could get a hierarchical structure back from the database. So you don't need to do many queries and round trips. But that's, that is special made for, for uh, SQL Server. So right. what I do in uh, for the other ones is that, let's say you have a fetching strategy with uh, order and order lines, that will, uh, that will perform, use two queries to 
first get the order and then the lines. Mm -hmm. And if you have regular joins, like order with customer, then this will this will uh, perform in the, the first query. So only one to many, many queries will uh, give an extra the, the database round trip. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I also tried to make a pretty slick filtering mechanism. If you, it's a bit like uh, the link expressions in C sharp, you know, where you can say order dot lines, and you have a mm -hmm. callback, and you say line dot product equals something. So it's kind of like C sharp link expressions. So uh, that's really nice and convenient, I think. Cool. Yeah, what you're talking about with you know making the second round trip for the um, the related objects, Rails does that as well. You can tell yeah. it to include those in it instead of making. We've been talking about this for, you know since Rails came out in what 2006 is n plus one queries where you you make the yeah. first query for the object and then you make n queries to fetch the rest of them, right? So you have 20 uh, line line items and so you make 20 queries to get them all and so you reduce that to making one query that gives you 20 yeah. rows or 20 uh, entities that you can translate over. And yeah, it sounds like you're solving the same problem in a lot of the same ways. Yeah. I know that some of the ORMs have uh, laser loading as well. So... So yeah. if you initially only got the lines without no, the orders without the lines, you can okay, you can say that okay, I want the, the line as well, lines as well, mm -hmm. and you will get it. But then you need to call some method or await the promise or or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, effect, effectively, the way that Rails does it is you tell it when you fetch the parent entity that you also want to include the child yeah. entities. And so it, it basically eager loads it, right? Instead yeah. of lazy loads it. And then since it already has it in memory, then when you say, okay, now I want to say iterate over them, right? It already has them in memory. So it pulls them from memory instead of from the database. And yeah. that's faster. So is there anything new coming for RDB? Well, I just added the conflict handling. So you can uh, both on insert and, and uh, updates. Okay. So... On insert, it would typically be like an upsert or something, mm -hmm. and you have, and you can uh, you can uh, apply a strategy saying that okay for this column, if there's a conflict, I want to just skip it, and mm -hmm. if on this column, I want you to override the existing one, and uh, yeah, so there are three strategies. It's the, the default, the optimistic, just. Mm -hmm. update it unless it's already there and uh, the overwrite and the ignore or skip on conflict I, I call it and um, you can also have this on it's also checking the old values so let's say you are in the browser and you're fetching fetching the rows from the from back end and someone changed the row in the meantime then you can have a strategy saying that okay if this row, if this column was changed in the meantime, then you can just uh, overwrite it, or you can skip it, or you can right. have a conflict, which is the default. Mm -hmm. 
So I created this this conflict handling on for all databases for SQLite, SQL Server, MySQL, oh, and PostgreSQL. That's that's the latest uh, addition, and uh, and I'm planning on uh, on implementing it implementing for uh, Oracle as well. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on the client side, you can uh, you can actually fetch fetch it from from browser and still get IntelliSense on it. And uh, mm -hmm. you would normally would would be a bit concerned about the security. Because if you construct SQL queries from the client, you could have SQL, SQL injection, and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So what I do is I, when I create a filter on the client side, I just I use a proxy, a JavaScript proxy, and I, and I record all the method calls, uh -huh. and I pass it to the server. And the server just replace all the filters and checks if it's if you're allowed to do it. And you can use uh, normal. Uh, it's hosted in in Express. It's just an uh, some Express endpoint, so you can add uh, JSON uh, web token handling, and you can mm -hmm. also add a base filter uh, just to limit what what orders you you fetch. This can be set up from from the server with this base filter. Cool, very cool. Well, if people want to check this out, or if there's, you know, if this is interesting to them, what are the best places to go look at it? I think um, I'll I'll post the GitHub link and the website yeah. link. But are there other places that you want, or that you want people to go to kind of get updates and stuff? No, I think uh, GitHub is just fine. Uh, I have only the web page and, and uh, the GitHub page. Just want to keep it simple. So, right. And uh, there are nice examples in, in the documentation. So it's uh, it's really easy to get started. Cool. There's one thing that's that's missing, and I'm considering uh, adding it, and that's migrations. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think uh, that's something I, I would need to have, but. Um, a bit worried about the re the reverse engineering part <laughs> because when I see all the issues in in the, the other ORMs, a lot of them are related to to migrations. And typically, when you mix forward and reverse engineering, mm -hmm. it will end up in conflicts. And yeah, so I think I start out with just forward. So you just define your models and just call some yeah. use some just call generate or something, and that will generate a uh, 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 SQL migration. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, you can just deploy it and then change the change the data model again and call generate, and then you will have a new migration. Yeah, Rails um, Active Record has migrations, and I use them pretty heavily. So, yeah, in fact, that's how you manage all of your database structure. Right there's there's not really a, you know a better way to manage your database structure than that for for those apps. Um, how do you do it currently? Do you have to have your database specialist or your developers go in and 
directly run the queries to update the database or do you have another mechanism for that right now? Uh, we just, at my current workplace, we use uh, Liquabase actually. But this is mainly because there is, uh, it's working for Java and other languages as well. So that's, that's our tool. Okay. I don't know if you have heard about it, Liquabase. Uh, nope, but I, I'll post a link because I just looked it yeah. up. And... But uh, uh, historically, we, we just use plain scripts. I just name them mm-hmm. .001 SQL and, and just right. make a small uh, batch, just make a small script to, to, to run them sequentially. So, mm-hmm. And then I have a, a table in the database that says the current version of the Yep. Migration now. Yeah. So pretty simple. Yeah. That's more or less how Rails works. It's just, it's actually yeah. written in code instead of SQL. And yeah, they're, the number on it is time stamped instead of, um, you know, version number. But it used to be version number, it used to be 001 or oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, ten, whatever. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. But, but sometimes it, uh, migration can involve uh, data migration as well. So you need to, ma- to do yeah. something manually. I generally try to do those in a separate task. Yeah. Because um, if you're doing structural migrations, a lot of times you can't rely on the structure of the database to match up with your data migration. And you'll get errors saying, hey, this field doesn't exist or things like that, depending on how it runs. Because Rails isn't sequential it keeps track of each migration and whether or not it's been run on your database okay and so i think i think some orms you can generate uh, migration and then you can uh, add custom sql before it and after it mm-hmm. yeah yeah you can add custom sql in there but it's kind of ugly to do yeah so and by ugly, it's just it's not as clean as the change this column, change this table kind of thing that you get out of the nice Rails um, DSL or domain specific language that they have for your migrations. So, but yeah, and, uh, it makes sense to have them. I like that. All right. Well, you can also you can also uh, when you generate uh, filters, you can also mix them with uh, with custom filters, mm-hmm. like with raw raw SQL filters. Right. And you can have you have this logical operator. You can have and or and you can just mix as as you like. But sometimes it's easier to write a filter directly in raw SQL than using the ORM. Yeah, that's true of pretty much every other system I've worked on as well. Is just that, yeah, having that possibility because yeah, there's not a clean way to get it using the ORMs language around looking stuff up. So when you talk about a filter, you're talking like a, oh, a where condition? Yeah. On a statement? Where okay, condition. so yeah, one of the things that Eloquent does in Laravel that I think is really cool is they have something called scopes. Mm-hmm. And a scope is where you define a separate function, you know, that says, it, you, you know, you feed in your query builder and you say, here's my condition for whatever this where Rails is. Rails do. Right? And then when you're actually building your query, you just chain it on. So everything's chained. You know, you're using the fluent uh, 
approach where you chain things on. So if you just want, if you're writing your query, you know, where this and this, then you just chain on your predefined scope and that functions as a filter. So you could dynamically add it or you could, you know, hard code it depending on how you're writing your code. But uh, it sounds like that's what you're you're dealing with here is, is the ability to have a custom defined scope that you can just, you know, add as needed. Yeah. It looks like filter can go in, yeah, and contain a where value. Anyway, definitely interesting. And I don't think there's really a, maybe there is, and I just don't know about it, but typically we're using where conditions and not filters in our Rails stuff. So that might be an interesting way to solve at least one particular problem that I'm running into right now on my client project. So anyway. But scopes don't use the filter keyword in SQL. They actually just encapsulate a where or... A where, correct. Yeah. Anyway, cool. Cool stuff. All right, well, I'm going to push this into our picks. Lars, I don't, I'm going to assume that you've listened to the show, but I'm going to explain to people who are new. Um, and we've had some people pop on and off on Facebook to watch our live feed, which is fun. Um, and you go find us on the JavaScript Jabber page on uh, on Facebook. We're, we're also streaming it to LinkedIn and to uh, YouTube. Um, we're working on getting it streamed to Twitter, um, which I think is where we have a lot more people following us. So yeah, just keep an eye out because we'll we'll be around. And then if you want to watch us live, you know, all the better. And then you know, if you want the cleaned up version, then in a few weeks we'll have it out on the podcast feed. But um, yeah, so picks are just shout outs about stuff we like. I'll let Steve go first since he's good at it. Well, well, well. So we'll get to the dad jokes of the week, which are uh, the highlight of any episode, if you ask me, but that's only if you ask me. Um, Now, for those who are fans of the dad jokes, I must uh, tell you that I have lost my drum roll my drum rim shot sound effect at least for now i'm hoping to get it back with change over yeah we switched <laughs> uh, systems but there is uh they showed me how to do sound effects but yeah we're gonna have to upload them and i don't i haven't yeah. figured out how to do that so i will have we'll, some fun we'll with that. so when, when i tell the jokes just imagine the the normal rim shot in your head or or maybe chuck can give me one um so <laughs> thank you thank you yes so man walks into a bar, you know, holding a golf club. And the bartender looks at him and with this look and says, why the golf club? And he said, it's my designated driver. (laughs) Thank you. you. Um, I was talking to my (laughs) wife. I was talking to my wife the other day and and she, uh, I, I told her that I absolutely love, I think you say this Worcestershire sauce. Um, And she asked what's so special about it. And I said, it's hard to say. <laughs> right. And then uh, we were out at uh, a, a wedding here recently. And, and she said to me, you know, that's the fourth time you've gone back for dessert. Doesn't that embarrass you? I said, no, nah, I just tell them it's for you. <laughs> so those are the dad jokes of the week. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to do more traditional picks. I always shout out about stuff. 
Um, it is that time of year again. A uh, friend of mine owns a board game shop. I do this every year, I swear. I'm telling you, this is why I'm learning these games. So I'm going to do some picks of some board games. Uh, I try and pick a new board game every week. I'm not trying a new board game every week often. So, you know, sometimes I'm doing repeats. But for the next five or six weeks, um, I'm volunteering at TimpCon, which is a local game, uh, board game conference here in in Utah. It's in Provo. And uh, anyway, you can bring your own games and then, you know, just have little signs you can put up and say, hey, new players, welcome, right? So I, I like doing that, just walking over, hey, this looks interesting, can I play, right? And, and so then we'll, we'll play a round of whatever game somebody brought, or they have a library where you can go check games out, and uh, some somebody like brings in his whole game collection, the guy that runs it, and so you can borrow a game from him, basically. Um, and then, but volunteering there, specifically I'm volunteering with Gamers In which is a local game store. And um, they, so that that's the game store that my friend's part owner in. And what they do is they demonstrate six games that are fairly popular right now. And uh, so people can sit down and play them. And usually he tries to pick games that you can play in less than a half hour to an hour. So um, this one was one of my favorites of the ones that we tried out. It's called Acropolis. That's A-K, Acropolis, A-K-R-O-P-O-L-I-S. Um, and it runs about 30 minutes. Uh, the way that it works is really simple. In fact, uh, Board Game Geek puts a uh, uh, weight on it of 1.79. So I tell people that a two on Board Game Geek is kind of a casual gamer that, you know, people who aren't deep into board games and mechanics and strategies can play without, you know, and, and still have a shot at winning it and will enjoy it, right? They're not trying to overthink all the things. Um, and so what you do is you you have different color tiles. So they're, they're hexes. And you get a, a piece that has three hexes on it, right? And so uh, you typically start with one piece that has a blue hex on it that is a star hex. And so the, the number of stars you have in a color is the, the multiplier for the other tiles that you have that are properly placed on the board that are that color, right? So then if you put a blue tile out and you have one star in blue, then they're all worth one. And if you have four stars in blue, then all the blue tiles that are properly placed are, you know, four points instead of one, right? So um, the way that we played it, and I can't remember if there are different scorecards, but the scorecard we played with, um, it was... Uh, in your biggest group of blues, each one counted for uh, a point, right? And then your stars made them multiply up. Uh, yellows were yellows that weren't next to other yellows. Um, reds were on the edge. Uh, purples were completely surrounded. And I think there was another color, greens. You just got a point for every green one you had, right? And then you, what you do is you have the number of people who are playing plus one tiles out there. and um, the first person takes one, then the next person takes one, the next person takes one. And whoever goes first, they put the the token that lets somebody else go first onto the, the first tile after they take one, right? So they they give that up every time. But if nobody picks it up, then they get it back is the way that it works. Um, but typically, somebody's going to pick up that tile because they want to go first and there isn't anything else out there that really appeals to them. But you can build your city... Um, 
horizontally, right? So you can fit it in around the other pieces or you can stack them. And so if you put it on top of um, three other hexes, right, that are already in your city, then those spots count for two or if it's three levels up three, right? But you have to be able to cover up um, three other spots, you know, that are connected in the lower level, right? So you can't have an empty space underneath any of them. But yeah, so you just build it up and then you score your city based on those stars and the number of tiles you have that fit the description and whoever has the most points wins. So it's, you know, it's a relatively simple game, but there are a lot of ways to win and it really isn't heavily skewed toward any one of them. So it kind of depends on what you're able to pick up and things like that. So you do pay attention to everybody else just in the sense of if he picks that up, that's worth eight points to him. If I pick it up, it's worth four points to me and the other tile is worth five points to me. So he wouldn't get as far as head if I steal it. But mostly you're just trying to build your own city, right? So it, that's as complicated as it gets. Uh, like I said, it runs about a half hour. We've played it with three and four players and, and that seems to go pretty well. Um, it says age eight plus. It is like, I mean, I described it. It's that simple. So yeah, you can definitely play it with eight-year-olds. Um, I'm going to put an Amazon affiliate link in here as well. So if you buy it, I get a percentage. It doesn't make it cost any more for you. But I, I feel like, you know, you have to disclose that. But yeah, if you want to go buy it on Amazon, definitely go pick it up. Right now it's listed at uh, $28 and you can get it overnight uh, right now if you have Amazon Prime. So anyway, super fun game. Really, really enjoyed it. And so Acropolis is that pick. Um, the other thing I'm going to pick is... Um, so folks, I don't know if I've talked a ton about this, but my goal next year is to complete a half Ironman. And so if you're, if you're wondering what that is, it's a triathlon. Um, it's about a mile and a quarter swim, uh, 56, 57 mile bike ride, and then a half marathon or 13.1 miles at the end, um, of the, uh, you know, to finish it out. And so obviously I have to get in shape. Um, and getting in shape isn't as simple as just being, you know, being fit enough to do that stuff, but you have to have, you know, the right muscle set groups exercise together for the bike, for the swim and for the run. Right. So, uh, right now I'm getting back into swimming shape. I've, I've been mostly focused on running, um, that helps your uh, cardiovascular system and stuff like that, be able to support the rest of it. But then I get into the pool and it, you know, I, I get out and I'm sore and tired because, I haven't worked some of those muscle groups in a while because I quit exercising for like four months. So I'm trying to get back on the wagon and I'm trying to get uh, trained up. Uh, one of the things I bought, and this is for the swimming. Um, so if you're not aware, if you've never tried it, um, I have a couple of sets of waterproof headphones that are Bluetooth, but Bluetooth won't work more than like an inch underwater. And so as I'm swimming down the pool, I mean, the second I go under the water, it cuts out, right? So I mean, I either have to store the music or whatever on my headphones or I have to have something that'll transmit it and I like to play whatever on my phone without having to worry about loading up my headset. So I bought this um, head headphone set called Zygo and what it does is it has a base unit that pairs with your phone, right? So it does the Bluetooth and I just set mine right next to my phone. And then it has a headset that connects to the base unit. And that headset actually um, connects to the base unit through an FM transmitter, right? So it's a low-powered 
FM transmitter, and FM radio waves will penetrate water, right? So I can swim up and down, and it mostly sounds pretty good. And then it's phone conduction, headphones, and I swim with earplugs anyway. So that works great. So anyway, uh, long-winded pick. I'm picking Zygo. I really, really like them. Uh, makes my swim a little bit more uh, enjoyable because I can listen to music or a podcast or something while I'm swimming. And uh, so I'm going to pick that. And then um, there was something else I was going to pick and I'm blanking on it. So, um, Well, while you're thinking about that, Chuck, as a former competitive swimmer and water polo player, uh, I thought it'd be worth pointing out that when you swim, you're supposed to stay on top of the water, not necessarily below the water. Uh, you know, just saying. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, my my head is far enough into the water to where the Bluetooth just doesn't work. So, ah, gotcha. Okay. Right. Just it's just, clarify that. I mean, if you swim with your head down, it, it puts the headphones, you know, an inch or two in, and that's enough for it to disrupt the Bluetooth. So anyway, um, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with those headphones. And uh, yeah, um, the other thing I'm going to pick, I guess, getting back into this is TriDot. So TriDot, T-R-I-D-O-T. Um, it gives me all of my um, workouts for my triathlon. And uh, so anyway, as you do assessments periodically, and then it adjusts the intent, it tells you what intensity to do the workouts at. And uh, I really like it. It works out really, really nicely. Um, so, so, so do yes, you have a particular triathlon that you're shooting for? Or just you want to do one? at some point down the road. So the one I want to do, I don't know if I'm going to be fit enough to do it is in May. And it is the St. George uh, half. Oh, way down there, huh? That'd be nice and toasty. Yeah. And it, like I said, it's in May, so it'll be warm. Um, but it's, it's close enough to where I can put on my gear in my truck and drive down. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just stay there the night before and then go and, yeah, I, I really, um, I'm really digging it. So anyway, the other thing that's nice about TriDot is that it connects to uh, Garmin. So my watch and things like that. So it'll import, when I go do the workout, it'll import all the data um, and do all the other stuff. So um, anyway, really like TriDot. All right, Lars, what are your picks? I have a couple. Um I have tried out this uh, platform for uh, building HTML hybrid apps. So what it does for you is that you can develop locally and it's integrated with uh, GitHub and it will support different Cordova plugins and it can actually build uh, the native app for both App Store and Google Play and it can deploy directly to the App Store and Google Play. So you don't really need a Mac to to uh, <laughs> deploy. So normally, if you want to deploy to App Store, you have to have a Mac. So this is a great tool for, uh, for Teams as well, I think. Uh-huh. And I have a great debugger app, so you can just download the debugger app and just push your code and it will download the code into the debugger app and you can run it and check how it works natively. Oh, nice. And it's uh, 
it's called Monaco. I think it's a Japanese company or something. Uh-huh. Monaco.io. They also have a UI library, but don't use it. That's that's not the good mm-hmm. part. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think uh, I've tried out something called Framework 7. It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, made by someone called Vladimir Karlampidi. So it's free and it's open source and it uh, has a native look and feel. So it's framework7.io. Cool. Yeah. And I have a, I think I have a couple of jokes. Oh, go for um, it. Yeah. Yeah. This one is a functional pro- programming joke. Two funks went into a bar. Nothing happened. <laughs> and uh, the second one, why do Java programmers have to wear glasses? Because they don't see sharp. Oh. Uh. Oh, that's a little uh, language-specific one there. Yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. good deal. Well, Lars, if people want to find you, say, on social media, follow you on Twitter or GitHub or whatever, where are you? I'm usually on Twitter. So it's uh, L-R-O-A-L. All right. Uh, we'll put that in the comments here and into the show notes. Um, thanks for coming. This was really fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up here. Till next time, folks. Max out. Adios.